In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 Lightspeed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired! Might solve a mystery, or rewrite history. This is the story we need, it's a right as we kept out of sight, but no more. So I'll read a book, or maybe two or three. It's such fun to hum a happy working song. Ooh, a happy working song. I have to sing, I have to play. The music, it's... It's not just in me, it is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney, your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Knackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. Today on Notably Disney, we are joined by the multi-talented podcaster and author, Len Testa. Many of you probably know Len from his years of work for WDW Today, the podcast, as well as The Disney Dish with Jim Hill. And he's also been a co-author for a number of years for the unofficial guide to Walt Disney World. So it's an absolute blast to be able to bring Len on the show to talk a little bit about his career and lots of Walt Disney World stuff, especially with this new edition of the unofficial guide to Walt Disney World. So let's get straight to the interview. For 15 years, Disney fans have become familiar with the voice of and writing of Len Testa via podcasts like WDW Today and the Disney Dish with Jim Hill books like the unofficial guide to Walt Disney World series and the Touring Plans website. And ever since the very beginning of WDW Today so many years ago, I've been a major fan of Len's work. I can distinctly remember being a preteen listening to WDW Today on my MP3 player and combing through uh, the unofficial guide on my futon couch. So it's a, a true joy to have Len join me on notably Disney Today as we discuss the forthcoming 2020 release of the unofficial guide to Walt Disney World. Uh, And we're gonna talk about the history of the series, lessons he's learned along the way, and what folks can expect from both the book and Walt Disney World in the next year. So Len, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Uh, Thanks for having me, Brett. Well, I'm hoping that if there are listeners out there who are not already familiar with your work, could you maybe share with listeners a little bit about your background and connection to the Disney community? Sure. Um, So I am, uh, by education and by profession, I'm a computer scientist. So I have uh, an undergraduate and graduate degree in computer science. Um, The interesting thing about my education is that for my master's thesis, I wrote computer algorithms 
to help you avoid lines in theme parks like Walt Disney World. And that got me a gig uh, doing research originally and then co-writing the unofficial guide to Walt Disney World. And from there, I went into the glorious, glorious world of podcasting. And so that's my, uh, that's my day job now is writing about Disney and recording shows about it. Isn't it always nice when the research you do actually has practical meaning and value? <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I talked to a lot of people who who did you know different things for their college careers, and I would say probably eighty percent of them don't aren't working in the field in which they studied. And I always I always find it unusual. Like, how did you how did you not decide not to do the thing that you studied? You know, maybe it was better pay or maybe it was more convenient or maybe you decided you didn't like it or something like that. But um, especially for graduate school, like to, to, to go an extra couple of years to college and ultimately decide it's not the thing for you is, uh, is unusual. I'm, I'm really fortunate to have, uh, uh, at least for the last 20 years or so, done exactly what I like to do. Uh, it worked out really well. Very nice. Now, what was the first year in which you actually co-authored one of the unofficial guide books? 2003, um, but I had been okay. doing research for the book since 97. So at this point, uh, we're now, what, 30, 34, 35 years into the unofficial guide. I've actually been with it for more than half its life. Not the first 12 years, but close. Yeah, you know. Right. Right. Well, and really, ever since then, the debut of Animal Kingdom. So a lot has happened over the past 21 years. I like to say all the good, all the good editions were mine. <laughs> I tell Bob all the time. <laughs> all the good stuff's mine. <laughs> Actually, it's not true. The good stuff is not all mine. All the smart-ass comments are mine. <laughs> all of them. <laughs> So, so are you chiefly responsible for all of like the, the ideas b behind like the funny illustrations and the titles and the headers for some of the... Uh, it's usually the, the cartoons are actually... Uh, we have a professional cartoonist who does them, and Bob handles all of that. Um, Bob does all of the reader comments, and we get together every year and sort of set the, the research agenda for the year for the book, and that is uh, almost entirely driven by reader feedback so um to this day i mean bob's been writing the unofficial guide since 85 so again 30 on um, 35 years he still reads every single reader email we get without fail uh and that is impressive um so generally what what we'll do is bob will notice a trend in in reader comments or i'll notice a trend in reader comments and uh we'll get together a couple times a year and say you know for the next quarter for the next half year for the next year these are the the research topics that we want to um that we want to focus on and that's led to us i mean this led to us having some really really interesting projects everything from our collection of hotel room views to um restaurant you know the restaurant surveys that we do now that are i think as, as good as disney has internally um to attraction reviews we've got half a million of those in the last year to you know to the touring plans themselves and what to include and what not to include yeah, so so no shortage of data whatsoever. No, I think one of the, the great things about the unofficial guide, and especially Bob, is that he recognized very early on, and by very early on, I mean like the 1980s, that having data was critical to uh, producing a, a very good and comprehensive travel guide. And so we've always been focused on numbers and data uh, way before... You know, terms like artificial intelligence or you know cloud computing or things like that 
were uh, common. We we had you know we had an idea of what we needed to do twenty or thirty years ago. Well, and and it sounds like reader feedback has been a hallmark of the series. Many oh, of God. us know when we when we look at the books on like at our local Barnes and Noble for those of us who actually still go to bookstores that it says like you know however many millions of copies sold of of these unofficial guides across the different destinations it's a it's a major institution oh yeah we've sold over uh, 6 million copies and the vast majority of those were for the Walt Disney World um, book but the uh, the number of reader surveys that we get every year and the detailed data that we get from them drives you know everything we do so one of the uh, one of the things that we did this year in fact, based on reader feedback, was we actually shortened the book. We the 2020 edition. Um, one of the major efforts that we did for it was to re-edit the entire book, page by page. It took the better part of six months, um, but we've condensed it. We've moved material all around to make it uh, fit in the most appropriate section, and we've condensed every chapter. Um, the other thing that we did, and this was really interesting, we did a, like a mini user experience test. For the book. Are you familiar with user experience testing on the web? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we took those principles and we applied it to the book this year. It was, and it was a, a, an interesting idea for a couple of reasons. One um, is this. So for user experience testing on the web, they tell you that things that are above the fold, are you familiar with this term? Things that you can see without having to scroll. Oh, sure. Above absolutely. the fold. Yeah, yeah it's, from the absolutely. Old, it's from the old newspaper days when a, uh, when a folded newspaper is sitting on a uh, a newsstand, and you can see things that are on the top half of the newspaper. It's above the fold, and those are the most important things. So, what we decided to do with the uh, with the book is is follow that principle. Um, so, we in order to find out what was what information needed to go quote above the fold, we interviewed hundreds of travel agents and people who'd been to Disney World more than once. And Brett, we asked them this question, which I will now ask you: What was the thing that you didn't know you didn't know? After your first trip to Walt Disney World, that's a great question. I'm going to be, <laughs> I, I'm going to be dating myself. So my first trip was back in '99, and okay. I was a, I was about seven years old, so I was a pretty young kid. I guess what I didn't realize at that point were how many resorts there were on right. the property. That was right. a, a big. Well, and mind you, the landscape has changed significantly on the DVZ front since then. But still, yeah, sure. it was it was massive. So the thing that uh, in answering, in getting answers to those questions and asking that question and getting the answers, one of the things that we realized was that there was, for uh, many people who've never been to Walt Disney World before, they have no concept of how big Walt Disney World is in general. So when we say things like, it's about the size of San Francisco, or it's got a bus system about the size of Jacksonville's, you know, that helps to put it into context. So we, in our introductory chapter, now say things like, not only can't you see all of Walt Disney World in one day, but we describe each of the four parks, the two water parks in downtown Disney. And we tell you, you know, if you wanted to see everything, it would take the better part of a month, like to see it, you know, a comprehensive way. And then we explain things about the resorts. So for each chapter now in the book, and there are, I think, around 20 chapters in the book, for each chapter, we, at the beginning of that chapter, above the fold, we answer the most common questions that people or the most common things that people didn't know they didn't know after their first trip or before their first trip. That seems so, like a really compelling way of presenting the information. It was. So the thing, one of the other things that I thought, speaking of resorts, that was very surprising to me is how many people assumed that Disney resorts offered free continental breakfast because 
I mean, Holiday Inn Express offers free continental breakfast. You know, Marriotts do a lot, a lot of a lot of places, mid-tier chains offer a free continental breakfast, and they're like, well, I'm sure Disney does this too, and and they don't. I was well, surprised at how many times that showed up in our survey. I was going to say, apparently they've never been to Disney where everything costs an arm and a leg. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the cost was the other thing. I mean, if I had to, if I had to pick an, a number one general topic that people didn't realize, it, was, it would be number one, how much it costs. Number two, how big it is. Number three, how much time it takes. Those are the topics. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of stuff in there that, um, that we really didn't know that people didn't know. So we, on with that list, we, we reorganized the entire book. Again, we cut 40 pages out of the book, even as we added information about Galaxy's Edge or new hotel research or things like that. Um, we moved things around so that, for example, information on wheelchairs is now in one section instead of being duplicated. Um, we split out the uh, part two used to be time and money. It's now split out into separate topics. One is time and one is money, which allows us to focus on that topic a little bit more. Um, the other interesting thing that we did was uh, a couple of other things. Uh, one thing that we got from user experience was that people didn't really, they weren't able to compare things like restaurants or hotels, even when we gave them survey information. And the reason for that is we weren't giving them context on the number. So like, for example, we would say something like Splitsville, you know, 91% thumbs up. Okay, well, generally, you know, 91% is an A in any sort of, you know, test. That's fine. But if I told you that Be Our Guest was 86%, nobody knows really how to take that 86% because we're not providing context on it. So in terms of sit-down restaurants for Walt Disney World, the average score in our reader surveys is something like 89% satisfaction. So if Be Our Guest is 86% satisfaction, that's much below average based on the number of servers that we got, the number of servers that we got for, for Be Our Guest. So now next to that number for Be Our Guest, we will say you know 86% below average, giving people the context around the number in addition to the number itself. So Len, are you implying that Disney should change the name to the restaurant to be below our average guest? <laughs> that's, that's clever, man. I didn't think of that. I'm gonna, I might use that for a topic title. The, but you know, the, the thing is, like, you know, when, we tell, when we tell somebody you know, 82% thumbs up, if you don't read the entire book or you miss the section where we explain or we say that you know, the average rating for a Disney quick service restaurant is almost 88%, you know, I, could, I could see how people might think, well, 82% is four out of five. Right, that's that's pretty good. We'll go there. But if it, right. a restaurant is eighty-two percent, there's probably seventy other places in Walt Disney World that are better to eat at than that than that restaurant. So we're providing the context around that. We're doing the same thing for for um, attractions too. And that's where, if there was one area this year that we had contention about internally, it's about adding that those context labels to attractions because. There are some attractions that people rate. The average attraction in Walt Disney World is rated four stars out of five on our scale. Um, and I think there was, there was some pushback about labeling things that are rated four stars or you know three and a half stars or three and three quarter stars as below average. But they are, right, compared to everything else. So there was, a, there was some, some internal debate about how, whether we needed to do that for attractions. We did it. I'm very interested in seeing... Um, what the feedback is from readers on it. 
That's that's really fascinating. Well, one thing that came to mind when you were talking about how people rate different experiences, I was when I was listening back to an uh, old episode of the DCL podcast uh, in which you were a guest with Stephen Christie, who are uh, fellow Disney podcast friends, and and you're talking about how so many children most respond to character experiences, parades, and fireworks. Right. Is that still holding true? It is, actually. So uh, building on that, we added uh, a chart to every theme park chapter that says, for every age group, what are the 10 most popular things to do in that park for that age group? And it still oh, wow. holds true. It still holds true, especially in the Magic Kingdom. You know, parades, fireworks, and character greetings are the most popular things for uh, preschool and grade school kids. In fact, meeting Mickey Mouse is pretty much the, the t- a top three experience for virtually every age group um, in most parks. It's only in parks that don't have a lot to do, relatively speaking, that you tend to see other things at the top of the list. Like at the studios, um, uh, meeting Minnie and Mickey in, uh, uh, on uh, Red Carpet Dreams is not the number one thing to do across all age groups. That's, uh, but you know the Adventures Outpost in Animal Kingdom is, yeah, it's... Um, that, that's an example of where doing that research, we're able to tell people you know, of the hundreds of things that you have to do in, or that you can do in Walt Disney World, here are the things that um, people in your group may like, so definitely try, uh, you know, try them. And that came out of research that we did with Elon University, which is super interesting. Well, it seems like it's probably handy, too, for a, especially a first-time visitor to the world to kind of position themselves, okay, I'm in this demographic, this is what might appeal to me. Yeah. Um, based on my age or uh, other factors. Yeah, I think uh, especially for for us, before we did this research, we were very focused on rides and shows and seeing those things with a minimum of fuss. But in doing the research, it reminded us that you know, character greetings are super important, that parades and fireworks are super important. It also helped us put things like seasonal events or special events, the hard ticket um, parties, into context. Like, if you look at the ratings across things, the Halloween party is the single best hard ticket event you can do. Like it's fireworks are more highly rated than regular fireworks. The parade is more highly rated than uh, regular uh, parades. The entertainment is better. The character greetings are better. So it allows us to tell people, you know, I know it's $120 for a ticket or whatever, um, but if you really like Halloween and you really like Disney and you happen to be there, um, from from mid August to November, when the Halloween party runs, it's, it's probably worth your money. By the way, I think the the it starts the Halloween starts in three weeks, right? In in Disney August eighteenth, August eighteenth. Yeah. Well, I you know what, I feel I feel <laughs> like you know what soon it's going to be like Nightmare Before Christmas, and they're going to be having a Christmas party in September. So. You know, why not blend that? I don't know why they haven't capitalized on that. Oh, they should. They should do like November first would be like the transition day. Yeah. And just do or or Halloween Day itself. Just do one. That'd be oh, cool. that's genius. You know, you know, Brett. Someone. So there's some Disney intern right now furiously typing up a memo. <laughs> yeah, one one can hope. Uh, <laughs> you know, it begs the question, Len, because we are talking about at least for children how mm-hmm. those character experiences and the parades and fireworks as part of that live entertainment umbrella. Where does where does Streetmosphere and some of the other bands and live performers at Walt Disney World oh, figure into the mix? Great point. So we uh, we added, especially in Epcot, 
we added a ton of live entertainment based on reader feedback. So if you look at things like uh, in France, uh, the uh, the mime waiter acrobats uh, server server amusant. I'm no oh, yeah. um, very popular across every age group. So is uh, British Revolution, the rock band in the UK. Those are in the new touring plans for Epcot this year. Um, streamers for characters always get a big shout out in uh, the studios for us. And I hear that they're adding even more ramping up for Galaxy's Edge. So that'll be good. But yeah, we've added a ton of live new entertainment across the touring plants. In, um, in, in the Animal Kingdom, we've called out the African musical performers. And again, like across every park, there's, a, there's new uh, live entertainment in every touring plant. That's fantastic because I know that's you know very much appreciated by by many folks in the park. So for that to be getting an extra spotlight, especially in light of the fact that some of the live entertainment has been cut back over the years in the parks, which is always a bummer. Yeah, my uh, one of my favorite all time groups was uh, Mulch, Sweat, and Cheers, and when when their run ended, I was very very sad. I'm glad that Disney's still doing those things, and the various members of Mulch have you know come back and done guest spots. In uh, in on on Disney you know in Disney bands during uh, during events and stuff like that, but uh, I really like those sort of things. It's a blend of like you know, familiar rock music and comedy, uh, and it's uh, it's not something that's unique to Disney, but you know, Disney always puts their own little uh, twist on it. I, uh, I really like that uh, quite a bit. My uh, my 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 ambition, and I told the uh, I told the guys from British Revolution this. I'm like, if you guys could somehow play uh, the Smiths' girlfriend in a coma in um in one of these sets that would be the best and they're like yeah that's never gonna happen <laughs> yeah disney management is lurking in the corner <laughs> yeah you know they, they they get they get to play roxanne from the police uh you know when they get they get to play a couple of other songs where if you know the subject matter of the song it's kind of funny that it's playing in a disney theme park uh, but i think girlfriend in a coma is maybe a, a song too far we can hope we can hope yeah <laughs> stretches a little bit uh, i'm wondering because we are we're, we're going to dive into some of the uh, new experiences in the park over mm-hmm. this coming year and you've been talking about some of the changes to the book one one thing that i know changes very rapidly are lines and crowd patterns especially with oh, yeah. the opening of of new sections of the park whether it's a toy story land or soon enough galaxy's edge could you maybe address how that landscape is changing across Walt Disney World and also within the particular parks? Sure. So the the big thing that drives changes to lines in the parks, like once once people are in the parks, is FastPass Plus. Um, what FastPass Plus has done is sort of compressed um, the wait times so that people are more evenly spread out across the parks. And a classic example of this is what Disney's doing at Hollywood Studios in preparation for Galaxy's Edge, where um, from August 29th to, uh, on, you'll be able to get only one Tier 1 Fast Pass for a ride, and you'll need you know, you'll get two Fast Passes for, for shows. Basically what Disney is saying is, because of the crowds that we're anticipating, you get to ride one ride with Fast Pass, and then you have to use two, or the other two things that you can get are shows. So the rules for Fast Pass and the way that it's implemented um, spread people out around the park. That is one of the, the biggest um, factors in, in crowds. Other things I think that we've, we've talked about in the show you're probably familiar with are things like dinosaurs more popular than it used to be in the animal kingdom because it's letter, uh, it, it begins with the letter D, so it's at the top of most 
uh, fast pass lists when Disney presents them, and people look at it and say, "Oh, it's a roller coaster. It involves dinosaurs. We should get a fast pass for it." Um, so things like that influence uh, crowd patterns. The other thing, of course, is um, new attraction openings. So we have to be aware of that. I think we did a reasonably good job um, with predicting Toy Story Land's opening. I thought we, uh, Fred and Steve on our team, did a really good job of modeling that. Um, we, I think, overpredicted quite a bit on Galaxy's Edge and Disneyland. We're probably not going to make that mistake again for World. We'll see what happens. Uh, and then, you know, we're building models out for Remy's Ratatouille Adventure, uh, for Guardians of the Galaxy, and so on. So we have a team of statisticians uh, whose job is to model these things and make predictions about how long you'll wait in line. Uh, and they're working every day analyzing data as it comes in to figure out what the, uh, what, you know, the daily and the seasonal trends are for those things. It's actually a science. I mean, it's their job. That must be among one of the most fascinating jobs <laughs> out it there. Is, it's remarkably difficult. Like, um, so this last year in uh, January and February, uh, and a little bit into March, uh, but mostly January and February, we, had, we saw significantly higher weights in line um, and much higher than our models predicted. And in fact, if you looked at the weights for January and February, the average weights in January and February, especially in the animal kingdom, were higher than at any point in June, July, or August of 2018, which is crazy, right? Because in January and February, like 95% of public schools are in session. And in June, July, and August, 95% of public schools are not in session. It's like, where are these people coming from? Um, so it took some figuring out of the models. We, I, and I'm not ashamed to say this, I hired six PhDs to try and figure it out. Uh, so we're working our way through it. It seems like a lot of things are just becoming so much more complicated at the parks in terms of being able to predict, you know, how busy it's going to be, where where people are going to be situated. Yeah, there's like no end in, in sight in terms of that, especially with major new additions to the parks. It's 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 complicated by a number of things. One is um, those, those sorts of seasonal shifts, people shifting away from summer to you know cooler months of the year, if you will. Um, happened relatively quickly, like in the last couple of years. Um, two, uh, I think, in fact, I, I know for, for a fact, because Disney told us, that last year, um, in 2018, uh, Disney tried uh, minimizing some operational costs in the parks just as this shift in visitation was taking off. So Disney was cutting back on things, anticipating lower crowds, and yet crowds came in higher than expected, which sort of exacerbated uh, the wait time problem. The, uh, the third thing is uh, some of the rides aren't as reliable as they could be. So things like Test Track, I think you're familiar with, Brett, doesn't... Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, that's sort of an interesting combination of things. And then the fourth thing is that um, Disney's recently switched over from using uh, the Flick card system. Remember when you used to get in line, uh, and occasionally a cast member would hand you a red contact List card. Oh yeah. Time your way. Okay. Yeah. They've, they've actually stopped using those in the last year, and they've switched over to um, trying to estimate how long you wait in line using your magic bands. And the algorithm that they use, the the software that they used to get that running over the last year, has had its moments of I'm not going to say being wrong, but perhaps less accurate than Disney wanted. So you'd see things like Kilimanjaro safaris. You know, the wait time's 20 minutes, the wait time's 20 minutes, the wait time's 20 minutes, the wait time's 130 minutes, 
the wait time is 130 minutes. The wait time is 20 minutes. The wait time is 20 minutes. The wait time is 20 minutes. Like, like what happened here? Uh, so figuring that out, you know, and what part of it is is right and what part of it isn't right um, is, is a challenge always. Just just sorting through the data and looking at it and saying, is this thing that we saw happening actually true? That's uh, There's a lot of work involved there. Gotcha. Well, a lot of things continue to change at the parks, whether it be lines or cost. And, and you mentioned earlier that uh, one new aspect of the newest edition of Unofficial Guide is that, did you say that time and cost is now split into different chapters? Two separate or? chapters, yeah. So could you maybe speak to the ticketing element of Walt Disney World and how that's continually evolving and becoming a, a much tougher pill to swallow in terms of how expensive it's getting? You know, I, I'm, I'm constantly surprised at the amount of money that people are willing to pay to go to Walt Disney World because Disney keeps raising the prices uh, and people st- uh, still keep coming. I, I'm not entirely sure now what the what the upper limit is. Um, I know that at its current cost, like an average vacation in Walt Disney World, costs more than 80% of um, uh, American households spend on vacation every year. So Disney's clearly targeting not only the top 20%, but my guess is they're targeting like the top 10% of American households by by income. Um, and for them, you know, maybe 120 or 130 dollars a day isn't isn't a lot, relatively speaking. Um, but knowing that, knowing that Disney's targeting targeting that specific demographic, sometimes I wonder, like, could you go to two hundred dollars a day for a one day ticket, and what would happen uh, then? But um, for us, the uh, we're all we're all about saving time and money. So the thing that we we do in the book and also on the website is we have this uh, we have tips on saving money on tickets. We actually combined it into a piece of software called the least expensive ticket calculator. Have you heard of this? No, no, I'd love to hear more. All right. So back in the day, like sometime around like 2001, um, Bob came to me and said, uh, I need you to do an analysis on ticket prices. And I need to give, I need you to, to come up with like three or four, four bullet points in the book for people to figure out the cheapest possible combination of tickets to buy to do whatever they want to do in Walt Disney World. So if you wanted to, you know, see, uh, go to the theme parks for four days. You wanted to go to water park for one day. And at the time, you know, if you wanted to go to Disney Quest, what ticket would you buy? What's the cheapest ticket to buy that does all those things? And if you wanted to park hop or not park hop, or if you're a Florida resident or not a Florida resident, right? Or if you're if you're okay with buying third-party tickets or not okay with buying third-party tickets, you know, all those things, what are the three bullet points that you need or four bullet points that you need to know to do that? And so I looked at it for a week and I came back to Bob and I was like, there's no way you can do this in three or four bullet points. And so he said, can you write a program that does it? So we did. And it's actually uh, in operations research is an example of this problem called a knapsack problem. Uh, and the knapsack problem works like, uh, works like this. Have you ever seen the TV show Supermarket Suites? Uh, sorry, Brett. Have you ever seen the, the, the TV show Supermarket Sweeps? No, I can't say I have. Okay. Imagine you're, uh, you're in a grocery store and someone walks up to you and said, here's a grocery cart. You have one minute. Whatever you can fit in the grocery cart in one minute, you get to keep for free. Okay? Sure, sure. Now, yeah. So you can't put a car in the grocery cart because the car doesn't fit, even if there were cars for sale, right? So whatever you get has to fit in the grocery cart. That's your constraint. Um, but what would you do? Like, you wouldn't go buy like marshmallows because marshmallows take up a lot of room and they're not very expensive, right? So smart people go for like meats, 
like steaks and things like that, coffee, you know, high cost things, right? So there's a game show called Supermarket Sweeps where they do exactly that. Uh, you're given uh, a grocery car in like a minute and you run through the grocery store like a maniac uh, trying to figure out what expensive things you could put in the cart and if you win, you get to keep everything. So it turns out that Disney, uh, finding the least expensive set of Disney tickets is exactly that problem um, in reverse. It's called the, uh, the knapsack problem in operations research. And the idea is um, how, do I, how do I fill my knapsack? In this case, how do I do everything I want to do in Walt Disney World the cheapest way possible? So I wrote a program to do that. It's called the least expensive ticket calculator. It looks at not only Disney tickets um, and third-party tickets, but it looks at more than a dozen different rules around Disney tickets to try and figure out the cheapest combination of tickets to buy. And I'll give you an example if you like. Oh, how fantastic. Yeah, please. Okay, so here's one. Um, if, you, if, you, if you know you're visiting Walt Disney World, let's say you're going on a Thursday and you're leaving on a Sunday and you want four days of tickets, right? You want a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday ticket, right? Most people would buy their ticket so that it starts on Thursday and ends on Sunday, right? Yeah, yes. yeah absolutely. Uh, okay, well, here's where it gets interesting because Disney's ticket prices are now based on the, uh, the days that you're going to visit, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's complicating things. Right, it does. And so the, the, uh, the, a four-day ticket costs a different amount of money depending on the first day you're going to use it. So it's sometimes if you're, uh, if you're visiting on a period where it's getting busier as you stay, the smart thing to do is buy a four-day ticket, which is good for uh, uh, four days of visits on any seven days. Buy a ticket that starts on a Monday. You'll still be able to use it Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. But because you bought it on the Monday, it's cheaper than if you'd bought the four-day ticket on a Thursday. That might only save you like five bucks a ticket, but it's $5 a ticket. Right. If you've got a family of four, that's $20 right there. This is the least expensive ticket calculator is free. That's $20 in your pocket right there. Um, and the, it works the opposite way too. So if you're, um, if you're uh, going on a day when crowds are decreasing, let's say you're going, and I'm making this up, but you're going on a, after 4th of July where crowds are getting smaller and you're visiting a water park, the smart thing to do is, if you can do it, um, plan your water park day first and then visit the theme parks because the farther away you get from the holiday, the cheaper your ticket is. So if you can start your theme sure. park ticket farther away from the holiday by going to the water park first, you can get to save a little bit of money. So there's like a dozen crazy tips here. There's like there are, uh, there are loopholes around adding extra theme park days instead of the flexible dates option. Um, there are instances where it's cheaper to add the Park Hopper Plus option rather than the flexible dates option. There's all kinds of tips that we figured out how to um, how to exploit, all kinds of loopholes. And it's all programmed into the, the least expensive ticket calculator um, to do this. And we've actually put the tips in the book, but there's like a dozen of them. And it's way easier to just push a button on the website and, uh, and get the results. But that's an example of the thing that we do. Well, that sounds like it's a very helpful resource for folks because, indeed, we want to make the most use of our time and money. So whatever whatever mechanisms we can use to maximize that, all the better. Yep. We had figured out that, um, that if, you, if you really wanted to save as much money as possible, it would take you an hour with a spreadsheet to go through not only Disney's um, website, but all of the, uh, the third-party ticket discounters available and you know, comparing their costs. Some of them, you know, include tax up front. Some of them include tax when you check out. Some of them have shipping costs. 
some of them don't. But you know, to do an, app, an actual apples to apples comparison, we thought it would take the average family an hour um, to do that calculation. So we wrote a, a code to do it, and we think that the average family can save between like forty and one hundred and twenty dollars just by using the ticket calculator, and it's free. It's one of those things that we we put out there on the web as a, a part of the public good for the Disney community. So we don't make any money off of it. We don't have any sort of commercial agreements with any ticket vendors. It's all based on price. Uh, and uh, like I said, it's free. That's awesome. So basically, you can help people you know, have enough to pay for a meal at Be Our Guest, which is now a below-average restaurant. So. <laughs> Dude, that dinner is $70. And I, I, I had trouble rationalizing that after I ate it. I mean, it was fine for what it was. But, I mean, dinner for four would be $280. It's not that good. That it wasn't service was fine. It's just not that's a lot of money to spend for an average meal. And that was my that was my and the interesting thing is if you look at the reader surveys, the reader surveys for Be Our Guest declined literally starting the week that that dinner, the the fixed price, uh, uh, fixed menu dinner occurred. It, it, it can't be a coincidence, it has to be the dinner, anyway. Well, let's hope you know that insight actually uh, helps make it to Disney. Right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm sure. I've talked to I've talked to people in food and beverage before at Disney. They uh, not for nothing, but we I send them a copy of the survey every year. The the survey results every year for every restaurant, all you know, 900 different places that you can get food in in Disney World. And I've talked to them about stuff like that about certain restaurants, like you know, why do you think this is doing well? Why do you think this isn't doing well? They understand. You know, one thing that I was I was thinking about when we we're talking about cost and and things associated with that. How how is the game changing in terms of Disney really investing a lot more heavily over the past few years on those hard ticket events? Not not necessarily the Christmas party or or Halloween, but rather like for instance, having an hour or so just exclusively in Toy Story Land yeah. or some of these other things because those are costly, but yet there is an audience for them. There is. Um, so one of the things that we said in the book was this. If you look at the number of hours the Magic Kingdom is open in 2019, when we went to press, it was about 90 minutes a day less on average than in 2015, which is when it peaked. And most of that gap, 90 minutes a day on average, can be explained by the fact that they've got 120, I think at the time, special events in the Magic Kingdom, either before the park opens or after the park closes to regular guests, that that is where a lot of that extra time goes. Now, for and it, for people who want to do those special events, it's it's good, right? You get more time in the parks. There's smaller crowds. You get different entertainment. You know, if you can rationalize the cost of the ticket, that's great. Um, but let's not forget that it's it takes time away from people who would in past years have been able to spend more time in the parks. Like, you know, on, on days now where the park opens at nine and closes at six for families with small children, you know, you can't leave the park for three or four hours and take a midday break because you've only got nine or 10 hours in the park. You're not going to spend 40% of that time taking a nap. Right. So, so what do you do? You've got to sort of grit your teeth and, and work through it, or you've got to take two days to visit the magic kingdom or make some other compromise. Whereas before, you know, if the park was open another 90 minutes, maybe you could see taking you know, a three-hour break back at your hotel. And that's one of the impacts to all these extra events that I think m- doesn't get enough attention. 
that you know for families on a three or four day trip with small children, the practical impact of that is you may not be able to take a break. And that's really hard during summer. I mean, I was there, I was in the parks on Sunday. Actually, you know, I was, I was in the parks like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday last week. And there were times when the heat index was above 105. Dude, it was hot, right? In the middle of the day. You can't, you can't go 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. Like, you need a break in the middle of the day. Um, so that's, you know, that, it, it's difficult. That, that's what makes, that's where the, the hard ticket events sort of um, make, make you ha- have some, some hard decisions. I mean, they're, they're good experiences. My, my, so our researchers have done like all the extra magic, all the early morning events in the Magic Kingdom and in the studios and the after hours events in all the parks and love them. They're all very good events, not very crowded. The food is good for breakfast. The cast members are great. You know, it's, it's a good event if you can afford it. But that time, some of that time in the parks used to be included in other people's tickets. I think that's the, the sort of the, the thing we should all discuss. Oh, absolutely. And, and I'm wondering kind of along these lines before we shift over to talking about the new experiences and attractions mm-hmm. uh, t- coming to the parks, could you maybe share some, some of the more major takeaways or insights or aha moments you've experienced while visiting Walt Disney World over the past year? And how maybe that influenced uh, some of the things that you've changed or added to the newest edition of the book? So I think the, our big aha moment, one of them was how good some of Disney's resorts have got. Like the Wilderness Lodge is pretty fabulous right now. Disney spent a lot of time and a lot of money on it. They built, you know, the cabins, they upgraded the main building, they redid the pool for like, I think the 17th time. I don't know how many times they've done that. Um, I'm not a big fan of the, uh, the new storybook dining, but overall, the Wilderness Lodge looks good. The, most of the rooms look good. The food is good. It, it's a good resort. Um, you know, same thing over at uh, the Poly with a couple of exceptions. Uh, but a lot of the resorts, Disney's done a lot of good things on it. Uh, even uh, Grand Destino, which I stayed at last week. You, you, can, you can say that it sort of looks like a heavily themed Marriott, and I think there's some validity to that. But the, the club-level room for the price that they're charging with a discount is a very good deal. I'm using the word deal in air quotes here um, for Disney club-level access. I think that um, that's, that's not bad. I think um, some of the, the restaurants in Disney Springs are very, very good. Um, and you can kind of see like the newer restaurants crowding out the old restaurants now. There's a reason why Haleo opened and Bongo's closed, right? For example, um, I think those are the big uh, the big things there. Gotcha. So kind of looking ahead, because you know there have been a lot of changes to the resort over the really past several months. Whether it's Grandestino, as you mentioned, or in a matter of weeks, the Skyliner opening up. What can folks? expect at a general level over the next year at Walt Disney World but more importantly how is how is that going to shape the overall experience because we're getting Galaxy's Edge, the Riviera, Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, Ratatouille, new films to Epcot and the list goes on and on and on. Yeah I'm, uh, I would not be surprised to hear uh, a bunch more Epcot stuff coming out of D23 in August too. It, it, there's two things two factors going on here. Number one is Disney's getting ready for uh, the 50th anniversary of Walt Disney World in 2021. Um, so it wants to make sure that it has new rides, 
new hotels, basically, you know, quote, new stuff everywhere across property in order to be able to sell those things um, for the 50th. With, and I think the 50th is going to be like an 18-month-long celebration. So that's why you've got uh, R- uh, Ratatouille opening next year in Epcot, Galaxy's Edge in 2021. That's why you've got Tron coming to Magic Kingdom. That's why you've got Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway uh, in the studios next year and, and Galaxy's Edge this year. Um, that's why you've got the new films in Epcot the, and the Skyliner too. The Skyliner, I think, is going to be fantastic. Um, my, I, I think it's a great idea. Uh, it's going to be one of those signature visual things for Walt Disney World. Not quite maybe the same as the castle, but maybe as good as the, uh, maybe as memorable as the Earful Tower was. The studios, I really think the Skyliner is going to be awesome when it comes. Um, but I, I will say this. Um, if you look at the parks that are getting the most of the attention, Epcot and the studios, one reason why they're getting so much stuff is they were underinvested in for the past 15 years. Let's call oh, it. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah, you know, absolutely. Epcot has not had a major new attraction since 2005. The studios at, w- uh, at one point had four open attractions, right? The studios, uh, there was a long period for which the studios wasn't worth the price of admission. Say, let's, all, let's all agree on that. Um, so I think part of what you're seeing now for construction is Disney sort of hurriedly uh, trying to make up for the past 15 years in a matter of five, right? It's why Epcot Future World is basically being demoed as we speak, they're trying to put new things in there. And uh, so, you know, it's great that we got, we were getting all of these new things, but let's not forget that we should have had new things for the last 15 years and we didn't. And I'm not sure that what we're getting makes up for that. Well, and the timeline is just feeling very crunched. And, and it also begs the question, per what you're saying, that so much is being invested into Epcon Studios. Wh- where does Animal Kingdom fall into the mix? Yes, there was the, the huge in- investment in in Pandora, but that's, yeah. it seems like that's been a, a mixed bag in terms of uh, how guests have responded to it. Um, and, and certainly the, the future of the franchise is, is very much still in the future. <laughs> if we, Brett, if we live long enough to see all of the Avatar sequels, I will consider it a life well lived, right? <laughs> it's entirely possible we all don't live to see <laughs> the Avatar sequels. Just James Cameron's descendants will be, will be directing these things. Um, I, you know, the Animal Kingdom is probably not going to get anything major, I'm guessing, for a while. Um, we, all, we know what's going to happen in Epcot because that roadmap is, is, is out there. Um, the studios is not only going to get Galaxy's Edge um, and uh, Mickey's Runaway Railway, but even with those things, there is still not very many attractions in the park. I mean, what, there'll be, what, nine? You know, nine yeah. when the, uh, once it all opens? Nine rides in what uh, what might be the uh, the second or third busiest theme park in the United States doesn't sound like it's done, right? Like when people say, "Oh, I wonder when Disney's going to open up a fifth park." It's like, well, they, they should finish the third and fourth before they open a fifth. Yeah, no right? kidding. <laughs> or you know, the second and third, whatever it is. Um, I I think they uh, they still need some work to do there. So I wouldn't be surprised if if Galaxy's Edge with Rise of the Resistance um, is as big a hit in florida as disney hopes it is i wouldn't be surprised to see an expansion plan for the studios sort of put on the front burner and there's definitely some uh, some room for expansion there if you look at how they've sort of navigated and moved things around backstage um, there is room for expansion in the in the studios and plus i mean now that they've sort of opened up uh backstage with the star wars hotel Right. There's a lot of stuff that they can do once they once they've decided that the uh, the park boundaries are no longer the park boundaries. 
that that really opens them up to park expansion. Right. Well, it seems like we're very much living in an age where the notion of the theme of a park is very much uh, being conceptualized in a, a different way. So the yeah. studio is no longer being a, a working production facility, but rather related to major film brands. Do, do you feel... Do you, go ahead, I'm you, sorry. You say that, right? Okay, and I understand that. But what's Guardians of the Galaxy doing in Epcot then? Like, right. this, is a, this is a conversation that I have with Jim all the time. Like, what, what thematically, what's the difference between the studios and Future World? Yeah. It, it becomes, can, you, it, it, can you think? No, what, I can't. I can't, yeah, I think. What, what I, franchise can't go in Epcot? Like what film franchise can't go in Epcot? I mean, Marvel yeah. for contractual. I was just going to say that. Yeah. <laughs> well, but but Guardians is right. But right. but you know, but like Frozen is in Epcot, right? Right. Mickey Mouse is in Epcot. What what franchise can't be in Epcot because of because of theming and 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 more broadly, right? And I would love for a Disney executive to say, what is the theme of Future World? Like what is what is what is what is we know what Adventureland is. We know what Tomorrowland is supposed to be, right? We know what Africa is supposed to be. What what's future world? And I that's the one thing that that bothers me. It's that um, there's no there's no consistent theming to each theme park anymore. And they're doing some some good stuff. I think Ratatouille is going to be a great ride based on what's in Paris. I think it'll be fun. I think Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway is great and belongs in the studios. It belongs anywhere. But there's this this general question of or this general problem of homogenization. Right, where where Disney executives will shoehorn in a a character or a movie tie-in into whatever park needs a, an attendance boost the most, rather than by what fits thematically. And I think that's very short-sighted. So this is me getting off my soapbox now. No, it's all right. I you know I share your same sentiments, and you know for it, better yeah for better or worse, Cars Land is a lot to blame for this. Because it's obviously it was extremely well executed and it's a fantastic space, but it, it in many ways it established that precedent that you can have a whole area based on one property. Yeah, and you, you can sort of squint your eyes and say, okay, Route sixty six, California, fine, right, fine, but turning um, Paradise Pier into Pixar Pier, what what was this all supposed to do again? And, and it's fine for Disney to say, look, you know, we, a theme park based on California doesn't work, right? We, we thought it was a good idea. It's not. We need to, to, to do something else here. But then don't call it Disney California Adventure. Call it something else, right? Come back and say, you know, the front of the park will be like old time California. The rest of it is going to be whatever we think works best. Fine, right? Uh, I can do that. But like for Epcot, what's future world about Guardians of the Galaxy? What's... What's future world about a beer garden, which what they're, what they're putting in? I'm not saying it's not going to be great, right? It might be fun, but but what does that have to do with the theme? It's like I have this I have the same complaint. I actually put this in the book about Disney's nighttime shows, right? So every time something doesn't work, whether it's a hotel, a restaurant, or a show, anytime something doesn't work, Disney's first response, and it is so predictable, it's funny. Their first response is to throw characters at it. So that's what they did with Rivers of Light, right? So have you seen the new version, Rivers of Light, We Are One? I have not, but I understand that it was definitely uh, not what they wanted it to be originally. No, no, it wasn't. So, but they've added, you know, Disney characters to it. So, you know, at this point, the Animal Kingdom show is um, water-based screens 
showing Disney film clips, clips of Disney characters with Disney music. Fantasmic is water-based screens, Disney characters, and Disney music. The next version of Epcot after uh, uh, Epcot Forever is going to be Disney characters, water screens, and Disney music. World of Color in DCA, water screens, Disney characters, Disney music. What, what's the difference here? Like, why, why does every park basically get the same entertainment for, for nighttime? Why, why can't they be different? Right. Well, and, you know, it speaks <laughs> to, it, you know, it's, it's frustrating, but it also speaks to, for instance, the notion of, uh, when Soren came over from uh, from California Adventure to Epcot, or Ratatouille from Paris to Epcot's yeah. France, like it, the it notion was, of, at the of, same time, like what what does yeah. Soren over California have to do with Future World? In the future, we're all we're all going to hang glide. I mean, what? And it worked, and 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 it was a great ride, and that was sort of like the uh, the 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 narrow edge of the wedge, right? Yeah. No, it, th- things I sound are becoming... like an old man being very very cranky, and I know I shouldn't be because I like Soren as a ride, yeah. and I like Epcot, but. It's not. It's not what it's. Uh, what's Epcot theme? And the, the thing that the thing that bothers me is that is that I know. Just I'm ranting here. <laughs> go for it. Go for it. I'm with you. So go for it. It's it's not like the Imagineers themselves aren't smart enough to do something, right? I firmly believe this. That the Imagineers, if you told them, look, we need a, a ride based on you know the future, future technology, or you know environmentalism, or you know, energy production or something, right? If, if, if Disney went to the Imagineers and said, look, I need a complete rethink of the energy pavilion, you know, tell me what energy means to Americans in the 21st century the Ima- and make it entertainment, make it fun. The Imagineers could have done it, right? 100% believe that there's enough talent in the Disney, uh, in WDI to have done that. Firmly believe it, right? But when management says, you know what the easiest thing to do? is Guardians of the Galaxy, that's a management problem, right? It means that two things. One, management doesn't have faith in, in Imagineering. And two, imagine, uh, uh, management doesn't have the vision to, uh, to see through the original concept for Epcot. That's disappointing to me. Right. Well, and you know what? It, I, I, always... <laughs> I promise, I really like Disney. I like it a lot. They're doing oh, a I lot do of too. very good things. Certain things too. are just triggers for me. <laughs> But you know what? The, it also speaks to our investment in in what the what the parks, what the overall Disney brand, the company speaks to is that you know things change over time with new properties and and just you know changes in the general c- culture and what we prioritize. But it, it makes you wonder how how everybody said okay, thumbs up on this. So going back to Guardians, for instance, you know. Wally could have easily been integrated into the energy pavilion. It would have still upheld the notion of what universe of energy was, but integrated the character character element. How that never happened still blows my mind. That's a great idea. And again, there's there's there are things like this. Wally, everyone understands Wally, right? Everyone knows the film. Everyone liked the film. There are things you could have done. Again, I don't think Imagineering was given a chance. Yeah. No, it's it's unfortunate, and, but. They are doing great things. Again, I think Runaway Railway is going to be hysterical. I'm glad that Epcot's getting you know, new films. Um, it points out the fact that some of the films haven't been updated in 40 years, which is, again, I understand. But uh, you know, there's, they could have, they, especially for Epcot, which is my, my favorite theme park of all time, uh, they could have they kept it the way it was. There was, nothing, there was nothing broken in Epcot that couldn't have been fixed. 
the same way that it was built. Yeah, no, I agree. And, and I, I find it encouraging and I'm hoping it remains this way based on how it was pitched that the the new film, uh, I think it's Awesome Planet at uh, where Circle of Life used to be, that that doesn't have characters, <laughs> that that um, in fact is a, an environmental based uh, production and that it kind of maintains the uh, integrity of of even Circle of Life, which had characters, and it was, yeah. I think, overall still very pleasant. And Circle of Life fit. And Circle of Life fit. And, and the new, I'm sure the new film will promote Disney nature, which is fine. It fits. Yes, exactly. Life. You know, as, lo- as long as it's not, I, I, I don't know, you know, Scrooge McDuck walking us through, you know, DuckTales presents uh, uh, Awesome Planet. As long as it's not like that, I, it, it's a good addition. You know, I think, uh, that's absolutely fine. I thought like Agent Peace World Circus Adventure when it was around, or if it gets rebranded to whatever the latest Disney Channel property is, that's fine with me, right? I understand how that works together, and it's this—it's a good blending of sort of Disney characters, technology, and World Showcase. I can I can get behind that. It's this—it's the 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 wholesale rejection of the the basic premise for Future World or or Webcut in general that. Uh, it drives me crazy. Anyway, yeah, no. I will say, uh, it has got a lot of uh, super interesting stuff. Have you have you heard about the new Japanese restaurant, Takumite? I I heard was not like eight hundred dollars or something. Or <laughs> it's very it's very expensive. Um, <laughs> but like top three restaurant, maybe and maybe even I think it's the second best restaurant in Walt Disney World right now. Um, fabulous, fabulous Japanese food. Very, very good. Excellent service. Great presentation. Excellent flavors. Chef really knows what she's doing. Uh, great stuff. Yeah. So I mean, they're do, they're doing things. They're doing things well, and I mean, they have the talent. Well, and you know that you know the new Mission Space uh, area restaurant is going to be a game changer and orient people to what they can expect out of the new Star Wars hotel too, in terms of the wraparound screen. So that's very promising. Yeah, and that's uh, that's supposed to open later this year. I think that's an aggressive timeline, but we'll see. I, I do think that some of the technology is a preview for the uh, the Star Wars hotel, though. Oh, it's it's all it's all very cool. And one thing I want to throw in before we wrap things up is so you mentioned that um, the shopping show with the supermarkets, and mm-hmm. it made me Super think, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah, it made me think, you know, with the advent of Disney Plus and trying to bring, there's going to be a lot of programming on Disney Plus over the first year or so related to um, whether it be the zookeepers out of Animal Kingdom or some of these connections to the parks. I think they just need to do like a supermarket sweep, like. Emporium themed, so it's like an Emporium rush, and you just put all the merchandise you can in baskets. I think that would be a winner. Yes, that'd be that'd be awesome. Wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? I I just think you know maximize you know maximize Disney Plus as much as possible and find creative ways of bringing in the theme park. So <laughs> hopefully, uh, hopefully we see some interesting projects come out of that. On as an aside, that would be a, that'd be really good. I'm I'm really interested to see how they integrate in the things that you did in the park with what's in the hotel. Mm-hmm. We'll see. Yeah, no, it's it's going to be it's going to be an incredible next few years for the company, and we'll find out a lot of, of different details out of the expo. But I, I do want to, before we wrap things up, and and you can share with listeners how they can get in touch with you and get a hold of a new copy of the twenty twenty edition of the unofficial guide to Walt Disney World. Uh, we conclude every episode of the show line with some Disney related questions. Awesome. That 
I ask all of my guests. So it is time for Ask My Questions and Get Some Answers. And this includes three standard music-related questions. Okay. Uh, as we, we are a music and book theme po- podcast. Two standard book-related questions. And then for the last one, I always randomize it, given the topic or uh, general things. So, Len, are you ready? I am ready. Okay, go ahead. All right. And I pro- promise you, it's not trivia-based, so... I'm not going to be asking you the opening date of the Tomorrowland Speedway, although we all know that's October 1st, 1971, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> opening day attraction. But uh, although, on a, as an aside, I heard something about Tesla, perhaps. Uh, I don't think it's true. It's a rumor. Uh, and the thing is, it would fit perfectly in it, right? I mean, it, it, it's futuristic. It's a, a classic Disney tie-in. It would be um, probably the first hands-on electric car experience most people have i, I totally understand in fact i, I would I, I think chevy should have done it with the volt and the bolt at test track like why not make these electric cars where you can actually drive them around or like self-driving cars where you can drive them around out in the in the test track parking lot it would literally be the first time the vast majority of americans get to see a self-driving or electric car like imagine the promotional opportunities oh god i hope they do it well, if you, you know, if you're able to talk with Disney management in the mid 90s, they may have entertained that. Now, I'm not yeah. so sure. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that would be that would be very cool. But um I guess going back to the questions, so because I kind of took things in a different direction. So with music, so mm-hmm. I'm wondering Len, what Disney soundtrack did you listen to most while growing up? Oh god. All right. So, true story. Um I had the 1991 official album on CD when I wrote my master's thesis. This is the official album of Disneyland and Walt Disney World. Oh, and sure. I listened I listened to it on repeat so much that I can't listen to it anymore. Like it's it was it got me through writing a you know 400 page thesis. Um, but I can't listen to that album in its entirety anymore without bringing me back to sitting in my upstairs spare bedroom, you know, finishing up that thesis and it was it was lovely right I, I enjoyed almost all of the writing process but it was the amount of work that that went into that thing every time i hear those songs it brings me back to that it's it's for the same reason why i can't listen to Sinead o'connor anymore it was great for that one period of time in my life but i can't do it now so i will hold back from singing tomorrow's <laughs> child then to, to save you we don't need to hear tomorrow's child again all right I'll, I'll you know it, exactly. It, it was a great album. I think everyone that if you haven't heard it, go buy it on eBay. It's like thirty bucks. Fantastic album. Can't listen to it anymore. And this is really what got me interested in Disney music. I mean, in the uh, in the early days of the internet, you know, being able to download wave files or um, you know MP3s uh, and having your own collection of Disney music um, was uh, was really important to me. In fact, like when I'm working these days, I have um, uh, an almost four-day non-stop background music loop that I can play of Disney audio that I've got through friends and things like that. But uh, yeah, I mean, I listen to Disney theme park music every day. Yeah, I find myself when I'm, uh, so I'm a doc student and I just, when I'm working on research or whatever, I'm like, okay, it's time for an hour of Tomorrowland background music. <laughs> exactly. See, for me, it's Epcot Future World. It's uh, the oh, super peppy. Yeah. But it's like, I was talking to Mike Newell from Mass World Radio one time and I was like, you know, I've got, you know, I've got like 20, uh, I've got like 20 hours at the time. I had like 20 hours of continuous background music of, of like Epcot. And he's like, 
20. And he looked at me, he's like, I've got like 200. Like, who are you, Mike? And, and, and I'm like, you know, send it to me. And he's like, yeah, I'll send it to you. I'll send it to you. And to this day, and Mike Newell and I are, are wonderful, wonderful friends. See him, you know, on a regular basis. Love the man. Would give him a kidney if he needed one. I haven't seen any of that music from him yet. <laughs> like, Mike, it's digital. If you, if you share it, you'll still have it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Okay. I have everyone, so I'll send him something like, hey, I got this. He's like, yeah, I got three copies. You want the, you know, original studio master? God, you're killing me, dude. You're killing me. <laughs> anyway. Well, if you you might want, yeah, we definitely want to hold on to that future world music because I, I swear, Guardians of the Galaxy music, it's going to be coming. It's oh yeah, be I know. Coming. Yeah. I, I enjoy it, but you know, everything has a time and place. <laughs> it does. It does. All right, guys. All right. Uh, what Disney song most recently got stuck in your head? Uh, Splash Mountain, the uh, the ride soundtrack. Time to be moving along. Time to be moving along. Time to be moving along. I'm still trying to figure out. Like the lyrics to to the Splash Mountain soundtrack, I swear to God, it's like trying to listen to Louie Louie and figure out what they're saying. Like, it, it it what what are the words to that song? I make them up in my head, and it sounds right, but I'm sure I'm wrong. I anyway. <laughs> uh, another music related question is: What Disney film do you feel has the most underrated music? Disney film underrated. Man, that's a good question. So basically not Frozen. <laughs> you know, I've never seen the movie. Oh, is that so? Really? Yeah, I'm like the last person in America. Um, underrated. Oh, um, uh, Iron Will. Ooh, okay. I see the Epcot connection there, too. Yeah, because it's played at the fountains, and that's really good sort of. I mean, that music fits in really, really well. Yeah, I'm going with that. And I actually saw that. I saw that in theaters. Oh, wow. Uh, I you would know, say uh, uh, number two, The Rocketeer. Ooh, good. that's a good one, too. Uh, James Warner. Cuts. Look at me. Yeah. You, well, you, maybe you already know this, but for listeners who don't, so Entrada, um, which produces a lot of great albums, they now, did, they now um, created a full score for Iron Will. So you can go on the Entrada website and check that out. Really? Yeah, I think I I'm I think I actually came across that like a day or two ago. So Ooh, it's nice. So yeah, no, that's great. That's uh Joel McNeely. So that's a good one. All right, so two book related questions. First is what is the most recent Disney book that you've read? The, you, can't, uh, you can't say unofficial guide, by the way. No. <laughs> um Disney Park Maps. I got the uh the park big big parks map book as a gift. I love it. Oh, that's to, fantastic. To yeah. see the, uh, so it's got the original uh, maps that uh, Walt drew of, you know, what was originally going to be a theme park, a Mickey Mouse theme park across the street from the studios um, all the way up to, to modern day. And the artwork on some of those things is just fantastic. It really gives you a sense of the original ideas um, that Disney had for a lot of the parks. So like the original concept art for, for uh, Animal Kingdom is just fantastic. Lots of little stuff in there, um, uh, you know, ideas that uh, that the Imagineers had. It's all crammed into you know to one thing. I love uh, I love first versions of park maps. Yeah, I was I was one of those kids, like probably many other Disney fans, where I collected park maps. So I uh, yeah, I, I dig that too. And th- what's great about that book is that they have maps of like 
different attractions like creative renderings like pirates yeah. or even Tom Sawyer's Island. Yeah, I mean it's a great book. You can you can open up to any given page and just look at that page for like an hour and try and figure out like, you know, what where is this in the ride or what were they going for here? It's just it's great stuff. Absolutely. Uh, if you could write a Disney book on any topic, what would it be? The films of Mickey Mouse. Oh. I think so? uh I think so this was actually one of my original ideas uh, for a book before I met Bob was to go through every Mickey Mouse short ever made and sort of analyze it for um, you know plot and character development because you know, Mickey became so popular so fast that there was a time and I would say from like you know the mid 1930s to maybe 2010 where he was really constrained as a character in what he couldn't do. Like, he couldn't do bad things. He couldn't be mischievous, right? Early, the early films, he was, the very early films. But then he got oh, yeah. in this, you know, 80-year period, essentially, where he was, you know, like, the all-American boy next door and couldn't ever do anything disreputable. Um, and I, you know, he couldn't get angry. He couldn't lie. You know, and, and that's why, you know, that's why a lot of people like Donald, or Donald's a fun character, or Goofy's a fun character, right? Like, they can they can do things that are self-serving uh they can lose their temper right they can they can act bad and and so they're the foil for mickey mouse um but sort of look at mickey mouse's character development it's why i think um the new mickey mouse films are absolute genius i love every single one of them um they've they've freed him from a lot of those constraints but the films are so entertaining and they're so funny i think the 90 new the 90 new mickey mouse shorts the ones that they've made since what like 2012 is it 2012 yeah, I think t- 2013. Yeah, as good launched. as anything Disney's ever made related to Mickey Mouse. Some of them. Have you ever seen Potato Land? Yes, I have. That is oh, so clever. God. If I said, I said in the unofficial guide, if at the end of Mickey and Minnie's Runaway Railway, there is a Potato Land T-shirt, I will wash Paul Rudish's car, the, the executive producer of the Mickey Mouse shorts. I will find the man. I will wash his car for him. Like there has to be a Potato Land T-shirt. <laughs> I, I have no response to that <laughs> no you know and you know I, I think what's exciting is that you're like you're saying they're you know they're harking back to the earliest days of the character and kind of reinventing him um yeah. so it's exciting and speaking of the idea of reinvention that actually leads us to the final question which is kind of ironic given of some of what we were lamenting about the parks what ex- extinct Walt Disney World attraction do you think could be resurrected in a new way to fit the current Walt Disney World landscape? Okay. The obvious answer is Horizons, um, which was a great attraction. Uh, I understand why it was dated. I understand why it had to go away. That was fine. Um, We talked about Universe of Energy. I think uh, that can totally be uh, totally be redone for the 21st century. It's not like Americans don't aren't interested in energy independence or, or things like that. Um, yeah, I think Epcot is just right for that. I'm going to go with Horizons uh, only because the broad topic of future technology encompasses both of those things um, plus more. I'm going to go with that. I'm going to go with Horizons. Also, great soundtrack. Yeah, oh, that's one loop I listen to constantly. Oh, my God, right? Well, and then you go on YouTube and you can find like the four hour loop of like two minute segments of the score and just have it on repeat for a hundred times. <laughs> oh yeah. And have you seen the, uh, the YouTube videos of, uh, Martin's vids? 
of, uh, of Horizons, like the ultimate tribute stuff that runs for like two hours. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Genius. Martin's, Martin's so good. Well, and also there's that video that got a lot of traffic about the people who snuck into Horizons. I saw that, and I had mixed feelings about that. Yeah, like, yeah. Like, I, I, I love seeing the, the how it all works. Like, that's just interesting to me. But the trespassing part of it, I, I felt, it, it felt wrong to watch it, let alone do it, right? And, and I've had my share of, you know, run-ins with Disney security over the years, not for things like that, but for other things. And so I understand how curiosity can get the better view, but... uh. Yeah, that was the. Uh, yeah, it was it was kind of tough to watch that one. Not part of it was fascinating. Part of me was like, we really we really shouldn't be doing this. So, yeah, no, I, I hear you. Well, so we kind of are wrapping things up. So I want to make sure that folks know how to get in touch with you and how to listen or read your content because you are across many different uh, mediums. So could you uh, maybe speak to how folks can check out? the new edition of the unofficial guide to Walt Disney World as well as Disney Dish. Yep. Okay, so the uh, the unofficial guide is in bookstores everywhere. It's also available on amazon.com. If you go into Amazon and you type in unofficial guide 2020, it should come up. Um, if not, email me and I will send you a link to it. You can also read um, uh, the unofficial guides website at unofficialguides.com. You can find me at touringplans.com or sort of the research arm of the unofficial guides. And I am Len at touringplans.com. You can also hear me on my podcast with Jim Hill. It's disneydish.bandcamp.com. That comes out once a week, assuming the Disney lawyers don't shut us down. That's a joke. <laughs> They're not going to shut us down. Well, it's always great to to listen to your voice every week or, or read a book. So, uh, no, such a such a thrill to have you on the show and chat with you today. And hopefully, you know, hopefully... Disney starts making some different changes to the parks as it pertains to thinking more about theming and yeah. where things fit. But um, but there's a lot of really exciting stuff ahead that does relate to brands. So uh, we have a lot to look forward to and we have a lot to check out in the newest edition of the book. So yeah, thanks again for your timeline. Appreciate it. Uh, thanks for having me on, Brett. I really appreciate it. And thanks again to Len for joining me on Notably Disney. It was such a fun time talking Walt Disney World with him. And if you want to hear more of him on a weekly basis, definitely check out Disney Dish with Jim Hill. That podcast has been a standard in my podcast library for quite a long time. And I always love listening to hearing about new rumors and news and other things on the horizon for Walt Disney World and pick up a copy of The Unofficial Guide to Walt Disney World, the new 2020 edition, debuts August 13th. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.